Welcome to another edition of BartCast, a podcast series curated by Bartimaeus Cooperative Ministries. Learn more at bcm-net.org. Now, in fact, uh, James Tabor of the Biblical Archaeology magazine writes, the original ending of Mark was viewed by later Christians as so deficient that not only was Mark placed second in the New Testament rather than first, even though it was the earliest, but in addition various endings were added to Mark by editors and copyists in some manuscripts to try to remedy things, end quote. Now, <clears throat> that, that, that's an interesting story all in, in and of itself, but uh, that is the longer endings in Mark. If you have your New Testament open, which uh, I'd recommend that you do, you will oftentimes see those longer endings in the footnotes now of your um, at the end of, of Mark, Mark's Gospel. But I, for one, love Mark's actual ending. However unsatisfactory it has seemed to other Christians going way, way back, because these earlier, longer endings were probably second century. Mark's closing uh, to his story is spare, it's evocative, and it's troubling. So I want to begin tonight's webinar by briefly revisiting the last ten verses in Mark's Gospel. <clears throat> There's lots to say about these verses, but um, uh, and, and if, if you want to study them further, I certainly point you to commentaries on, on Mark, on the second Gospel, including my own commentaries. I just want to highlight um, four points um, about Mark's story. Uh, the, the end of Mark's story. We, we have to start with the, the issue of Jesus' corpse, uh, which according to Mark was granted by the Roman procurator Pilate to a member of the Judean council that had condemned Jesus to death. Now, I, I would argue, and you, you see these verses here from Mark 15, I would argue that that was a political move on Pilate's part, um, prohibiting Jesus' own followers from getting his body. Um, after all, this... Um, this was a, a highly volatile moment, uh, as Passover always was. And we speak today in the midst of the season of Pesach uh, for our Jewish friends. In the first century, Passover was highly political, <clears throat> politicized time in which Jewish dreams of liberation were very much in the air and in the liturgy. And uh, as an occupied country by the Roman uh, military-industrial complex. Palestine was um, very much always on the verge of um, social unrest um, that ranged uh, all the way from protest to full-scale insurrection. Uh, and so uh, Pilate's decision to give the body to a member of the, the Sanhedrin, <coughs> the, the Judean authorities who had collaborated with the Roman authorities uh, to engineer the execution of Jesus as a dissident uh, 
was very much to prohibit the women in Jesus' community from executing their duties according to purity and custom. Now, Mark also notes in verse 47 that key women were nevertheless keeping a careful vigil. And uh, what's implied in verse 47 is that perhaps by stealth, three of these women figured out where Joseph had laid the body of Jesus. And I want to suggest that these women were <clears throat> not just being subversive, that their, their tracking of what was happening with the body was, on one hand, very much part of their duty as women, according to the culture, but on another hand, in this kind of political situation, was very much an act of resistance to the authorities' attempt to manage this political situation. So my first point uh, about Mark's Easter narrative is, uh, as is made clear from the next two verses, is that the main subjects of Mark's Easter narrative are women. And moreover, women without men. Now that's not only significant given the patriarchal cultural context of the Bible, but it's downright strange. And what I mean by that is that <clears throat> it's not strange from a cultural point of view in the first century. Um, these verses paint a very credible scenario of women who were concerned to anoint the body of a loved one after death and to follow proper barrier protocols that had been prevented by the authorities, as just mentioned. Um, moreover, they have properly waited until after the Sabbath was over, and now they're proceeding to Jesus' burial term to tomb to perform these duties. Uh, <clears throat> so from that perspective, there's nothing particularly um, revolutionary about their action. I do want to note that... Um, these actions are both beautiful and have integrity, the arts of death midwifery, all in and of themselves. In fact, about a year and a half ago, we devoted an entire webinar back in October 2013 to exploring the arts of Christian dead, uh, death midwifery with Laurel Dykstra, who's um, written a book uh, called Burial, Burying the Dead, uh, and our friend Susie Henderson in Toronto, who I think is on the webinar tonight. Um, who is practicing uh, death midwifery. So these, uh, we did this in commemoration of All Souls Day um, a year and a half ago, and, and we want to honor that um, vocation, which traditionally in many cultures has been um, the vocation of women. In addition to that, however, in Mark's narrative, um, we, we have to say that the very first transformation that happens in the wake of the resurrection is that these women coming to do their duty are invited to transfigure their traditional role by a radical call to become witnesses of the risen Jesus. That call will shortly come, as we'll see. Now, um, What's strange, and Torvald points this out in his writing, as we'll see a little bit later, uh, what's strange is that in the first century, 
women weren't even qualified to testify in a court of law. They were not considered credible witnesses. Uh, so why would Mark's gospel narrate a complete reliance on three women to be the witnesses of the amazing things that happen next in this story if their testimony wouldn't be taken seriously. The only reason Mark would have written that is if it was the way it went down. And that, as Torvald uh, uh, acknowledges, is one of the best uh, pieces of historic evidence that women were in fact the first to witness the resurrection. Placing the burden of testimony on women without men would not have served a nascent uh, Jesus movement very well in terms of it trying to establish its credibility. So this is a scene, um, this kind of scene is hardly something that they would have made up. It could only have been reported because it is the way it happened. But there's a third consideration here that's equally shocking and one that I tend to emphasize in my reading of Mark, and that is Mark's narrative strategy of having women at center stage at the very end of the story. In Mark's storyline, <clears throat> the male disciples have pretty much failed throughout to correctly understand Jesus' mission. This takes place through all the misunderstandings and the knuckleheaded moves of the male disciples. Not only that, but at the end of the story in the Garden of Gethsemane when Jesus is arrested by the authorities, the male disciples utterly abandon him, head for the hills. Women, on the other hand, in Mark's narrative, seem to get it in, in the few but important places where they are at the center of a scene. Whether that is Peter's mother-in-law all the way back in chapter 1 of Mark, who is healed by Jesus and who immediately commences serving. The Greek verb there is diakoneo, the archetypal verb of discipleship. Or whether it is the woman with the flow of blood in Mark 5 to whom Jesus says, your faith has made you well. Women, women get it. Moreover, at the end of Mark's story, the three women of Mark 16 appear together at the execution of Jesus, holding vigil. There they are described by Mark with three loaded phrases. He tells us, they're highlighted in yellow on your screen, he tells us that they followed, they served, there's that verb diakoneo again, and they came up to Jerusalem with Jesus. Each of these phrases articulates an essential aspect of Jesus' call to discipleship, particularly a discipleship of the cross in the second half of the Markan narrative. In other words, in Mark, these women are presented as the true disciples. The androcentric narrative of most of the gospel has completely collapsed at the point that the men head for the hills. And women now step in to keep the discipleship story alive. This is, I would argue, the key characteristic of Mark's Easter narrative, but one that has been largely completely overlooked. 
um, in our churches, at least in up until relatively recently. So that's the first point I want to make about Mark's Easter narrative. <clears throat> Second point I want to make it regards what I would call in literary theory uh, the plot complication. Now, as, as you see here, um, the women come to the tomb and they're saying to one another, who will roll away the stone? I find this image of a stone blocking the entrance to the tomb to be incredibly evocative, both theologically and imaginally. Um, it's uh, the, the, the question, who will roll away the stone for us, is the last question on the lips of a Markan disciple. And it echoes the anxiety of the first question to appear on the lips of a disciple, namely the men in the boat amidst the storm back in Mark chapter 4. Do you not care if we perish? Both of these questions articulate the primal anguish at the core of human existence. Yeah. Okay, great. As potent as our fear of death. Now, for me, this moment became a central metaphor in, uh, to, in, to explore the barriers to our discipleship in first world societies. Uh, and I work with this quite a bit in this book published now more than 20 years ago. Uh, and I think this um, meditation tried to capture my fascination with this paralysis before this stone. For us, standing between end and new beginning is a stone that is exceedingly great. It is a boulder as hard as our hearts, a roadblock of our collective addictions a landslide of our collapsed dreams, a mountain of excuses why we can't go on. It represents the dead end of history according to the powers. This stone symbolizes everything that impedes the first world church from discipleship as a way of life. We are paralyzed before it whenever we conclude that Jesus' vision of the kingdom of God was and is, for all practical purposes, a well-meaning delusion. And this is, in fact, a tempting conclusion because empire and war without end continue undiminished. So we seek to edit the gospel story in our hearts and from our pulpits and among our academies in order to make it conform to the depressive or grandiose swings of our imperial culture. But of course, in verse 4 in Mark 16, the closed story reopens. Mark puts it very simply, but don't be fooled. The verb to look again in Greek, uh, from the Greek verb anablepo, has a technical meaning in Mark's narrative. It was used earlier to describe how the two blind men regained their sight in Mark 8 and Mark 10. This verb is Mark's master metaphor for faith that looks more deeply into what appears to be in order to see what truly is. We might translate it literally as revisioning. <clears throat> so the women revision, they look again, they see that the stone is rolled away, but, but how? 
not by our muscle nor by our technology, I wrote in Who Will Roll Away the Stone, nor by any of our Promethean human schemes. The verb here expresses the perfect tense and the passive voice. That is the grammar of divine action throughout the Bible. This stone has been moved by an ulterior leverage, by a force from beyond the bounds of story and history, with the power to regenerate both. So it is in this Kairos moment of grace that the weary old story of the world, in which the powers always win and the prophets and the poor always lose, that this story is radically revised. Jesus is risen. But where is he? And that brings me to my third point about the Mark and Easter story. Mark keys on the conversation now between these women and a strange young man dressed in a white robe, the costume of martyrs in the New Testament and the early church. See Revelation 6.11. This is happening in a tomb that is empty. Notably, this mysterious young man has made an earlier appearance in Mark's story right at the point of the male disciples abandoning Jesus to the way of the cross back in 1451. Here we don't see Jesus. We only see this strange figure and hear what he's saying. We hear his testimony about the resurrection. And that testimony, in turn, is offered to these women in order that they might become witnesses, specifically to the male disciples, especially Peter, poignantly, uh, who is singled out, perhaps because he was the one who denied Jesus. And that vocation simply is the formula of what it means to be church, to be keepers of a tradition that is passed on. But how do we do that, and do we get to see Jesus? Jesus is not in the grave, nor is he up in heaven, as in the later appended longer endings to Mark, to give it a happy ending. Nor does the young man suggest that the women look inward to find Jesus. There is only one place, according to Mark, we can see the risen Jesus. He is going before you, Mark 16, 7, to Galilee. So is Mark's story regenerated, arcing back to the beginning. I send my messenger before you who will construct the way, Mark chapter 1, verse 2. The young man points the women back to Galilee where the discipleship story began. The end leads back to the beginning. Mark's story is circular. The resurrection now empowers the way of the cross. Let us not imagine that Mark's Easter epilogue begins a different story, one that cancels out or obviates the discipleship narrative. No, this third call to follow Jesus in Mark's story assumes the other two calls, which invite us to leave our nets and to take up our cross. 
Easter celebrates the restoration of Jesus' practice through our resumption of the journey. We are acquitted by resurrection, says Marketh Spart, not exonerated by it. Because according to Mark, Jesus' practice represents the only way to deconstruct the domination system and reconstruct a humane community. And thus, my fourth and final point about Mark's Easter narrative. That pesky last line in Mark's story. Isn't it true that we, like the women, are forever running away from this story, this invitation? Indeed, the young man's invitation represents a prospect we never considered, one too terrible to contemplate, an unveiled invitation to resume the discipleship journey, the consequences of which we now know all too well. Suddenly, from deep within us, from that unexplored space beneath our profoundest hopes and fears, roars a tidal wave of trauma and ecstasy and terror all at once, as reflected by the Greek terms in this verse. We race out of that tomb as if we have just seen a ghost. And so we have. For in, Mark, for in Jesus' empty tomb, there is nothing but the ghost of our discipleship past and our discipleship future. It turns out, therefore, friends, that the empty tomb as a sign of the resurrection, as a sign of the end of death, is a very difficult and demanding and, frankly, disagreeable one, especially to modern rationalist types like us. And that's why we've invited Torvald Lorenzen to join us, because he is, in my opinion, the leading explicator of resurrection theology today among radical Christians. You have been listening to the Bartcast, produced by Bartimaeus Cooperative Ministries. To find our resources or to donate to support the Bartcast, please go to chedmyers.org. Thank you for listening. <laughs>